we're determined that according to the scriptures that they were going to ask him any more questions. They couldn't. Over and over, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they'd all attempted to discredit Jesus and to make him to look out, look, look as if he was a, some a charlatan and a fake. And they all failed miserably. Now, as we set this in the time frame of what's actually going on 2,000 years ago, in that week that we know as the Passion Week, as Jesus is making his way to the cross. This is Wednesday, and Jesus knows full well. Maybe the rest of the crowd doesn't have a clue, but the Son of God knows very well that even as he's having to focus on engaging these unruly, fake leaders of Judaism, he can see the cross. He can see very specifically what lies ahead for him in, in, his, in his arrest and in the, the mock trial that would pursue and then eventually his brutal crucifixion. So I think it's important for us to realize it's not like Jesus is just there on vacation having a good time, you know, and dismantling the arguments of he's doing this with the awareness of the, the price that he's going to pay for our sins and uh, the sins of all who believe upon the Lord. And so as the, as the drama with the Sadducees is winding down, as I said, it's worth noting that often the shadows, there's yet another group of religious experts who are intently watching as Jesus is dismantling the Sadducees. And this group is the, would be the scribes, another group of religious experts. And we'll talk about them. You see, the Sadducees that Jesus just confronted, they, they were a, a sect of the Jewish leaders that uh, made up the majority of, of, of the temple hierarchy. The Sadducees were known to be more liberal in their theology. The Sadducees were known to be more contemporary, I guess, in that time. And they're thinking they were known to be more chummy with the Romans. They were wealthy. On the other hand, the group that was in the shadows that we're going to be looking at today that Jesus will be addressing are the scribes. They're sometimes called lawyers because they were considered to be experts in the law. And so they're watching and listening, and they're very interested in how Jesus is handling the Sadducees. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, and by the way, most of the scribes were actually Pharisees. So they were oftentimes referred to as scribes and Pharisees. And so the Pharisees and scribes, unlike their liberal rivals, the Sadducees, because you saw, we saw in Pastor Scott's message last week that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I know this is old, but that's why they were sad, you see. So the Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in the supernatural, including the existence of angels. And they also believed in the resurrection of the dead. So their response is, and, and Pastor Scott touched on this as he was preaching last week, but it would almost ironically appear like the scribes were, were buddies with Jesus, like, like they were on his side because in response to how Jesus responded and, and just totally dismantled the argument of the Sadducees about not being a resurrection, well, the, the scribes in verse 39 says, then some of the scribes answered and said, oh, teacher, 
you have spoken well. In other words, we agree with you. you, you have, you're on our side. That's about as far as it goes though, folks. Because as we examine today's text, you'll see that Jesus puts a quick end to that notion. And so as we move through this text that we've just read over together, there's a few things that I want us to focus upon that seems to unfold in this uh, time that Jesus is, is addressing the scribes. But actually you'll see he's not really addressing the scribes. But first and foremost, I want us to see the Lord's sobering warning. You have that outline sketched out very basically in your worship guide. So if you want to make notes along the way, feel free to do so. Jesus gives a very sobering warning, but it's important as we think about that, who is this audience? Who, who is Jesus really speaking to? And so with that, in chapter 20 there, and look at verse 6. It says, beware of the scribes who desired to walk in long roads. Now, who's Jesus talking to there? Go back to verse 45. Then in the hearing of all the people, so that just like every other day, Jesus is there at the temple complex. He's teaching. Jesus draws a crowd. And so understandably, the, the unintended audience is all the people who are listening. Everybody gathered around in earshot they're actually the unintended audience. So generally speaking, it's all the people. But then his specific audience that he's addressing, I think it's important for us to realize, is his, are his disciples. He said to his disciples. Now you're talking about Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and John, and James, and, and all the, the, the 12, and then others who were committed to following Christ and so he's, he's issuing a warning. Now, it's interesting because beginning with this episode, like I said, Jesus is no longer confronted. This, this ends the clashes between Jesus and the religious leaders. They, they realize they're not going to be able to trip him up. He's infinitely wiser than they are and, and, and has more authority than they do. So, so he's, he's not even at this time anymore. From this point on, he's not addressing the crowds. He's narrowed his audience down to his disciples. And I believe that there is an intensity in the Lord's warning. And he's wanting to show them things that they need to be aware of about the faulty system of religion that has engulfed the Jews. We know it as Judaism. A legalistic works-based system that is absolutely ineffective in bringing people to God, which goes all against the grain against the grain of everything taught in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is warning his true followers, his disciples, of the danger lurking in the religious system around them. And that's why, in verse forty-six, when he starts out, he says, "Beware." I don't know about you, but if I'm just kind of moseying around and come up on a yard that has a big sign, you know, bold letters, maybe the face of a pit bull with spikes around the collar saying, beware of dog. Yeah, I don't know about you. I take those signs seriously. I don't know. If you've never been chased by, bitten by a dog, you know, all it takes is one time. 
I see that sign. I'm okay. Backing up now. Backing up now. I saw. I don't know. I read something. Somebody was talking about. They went up to a house. Didn't even notice the sign. Beware of dog at the gate. So they went on up to the back door. Started pounding on the door, and they saw this little note. It says, "The bulldog that is guarding this property can make it to that gate in five seconds. How fast can you make it?" <laughs> So Jesus is saying about the bulldog religious leaders and this faulty system of Judaism, he said, beware. And, and this is where he singles out the scribes because now that we have the idea of the, of the audience, now we look at his target. And so as he's addressing his disciples, he's aiming his criticism at these scribes and they represent the other false leaders of Judaism of that day. He's talking about the evil religious imposters of Judaism, namely the scribes and the Pharisees. And But, but it's, let's be fair. I know it's so easy to throw everybody into the same pile and say that they're all guilty. But when Jesus is, is singling out the scribes and Pharisees, we know that not all Pharisees are bad. We know of at least one instance where a man who was a Pharisee, whose name was Nicodemus, he came by night. That's where we get Nick at night. He came by night to Jesus to ask questions related to truth and the kingdom of God. In fact, I think it's interesting in, in John 19, verse 39, it talks again about Nicodemus. And he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, took upon themselves the responsibility of lowering our Lord's body down from the cross and tenderly wrapping with spices his deceased body, preparing it hastily because the Passover was coming for burial. So let's not lump all the Pharisees. Let's just acknowledge that there were some good, but for the vast majority of them, certainly they were rotten to the core in, in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus called them quite a few names. I mean, my goodness. Uh, wolves, vipers, robbers, thieves. Even called them sons of the devil. And that's getting pretty pretty bad. And, and who better to make that recognition than the Son of God? So here they were, these religious leaders, the, the scribes, entrusted to protect and promote the word of God and they had abusively transformed it into an oppressive legalistic system. Instead of helping people through the word to come to God, they were actually creating such barriers, using the misusing, I guess I should say, the law so that this oppressive legalistic system made it impossible for people to even feel redeemed and i like to go to matthew in chapter 23 and if you're making notes you can just jot it down and i'll read it and you can read it later but matthew 23 gives us a good parallel in matthew 23 verses 1 through 4 jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying the scribes and the pharisees sit in Moses' seat therefore whatever they tell you observe that observe and to to observe that observe and do but do not do according to their works for they say and do not do they're hypocrites now, Jesus is careful to say, now, don't disregard what they're teaching from the word and from the law. And they're giving you instructions right out of the law of God. 
Yes, that's credible. And you you do that. You obey that. But he says, be careful. Because that crowd, they don't always do what they say. You know, and that kind of reminiscent of what James says in his epistle in James chapter one, you know, 22 and 23, when he says, don't be just hearers of the word and not doers. And so deceive yourself. He says, you know, if you're a hearer of the word, you're not a doer of the word. You're like a man that observes his natural face in the mirror. He turns and goes away and immediately he forgets what kind of a person he was. Don't, he said, don't be like that. You're deceiving yourself. Listen, all of Judaism virtually was deception. These were leaders who were deceived. These were leaders who had deceived the people. And Jesus went on to Matthew 23 and verse 4 and said, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And that was the case with the scribes, the experts in the law. They were entrusted with the privilege of, of, of leading, shepherding the people of God. What an awesome responsibility. What a glorious privilege to be called upon to be the very shepherds of God's people, to bring them to Jehovah. And yet in their sinful, twisted hearts, they hindered the people. They were a hindrance to the people, kept them from being able to truly worship and serve Jehovah. And God certainly will hold them accountable for that. Jesus knew that. So there's Jesus's sobering warning to the disciples about the religious leaders and the danger lurking there and the faulty religious system in place that was actually a barrier between God's people and God. It was also an ominous, sober warning to the leaders. Their, their day would come. So now on the heels of that, Jesus moves forward with what I consider to be a, a, a scathing expose. Not, he's not just giving a general warning and said, those are bad to the bone guys. But he goes on. And so we... And, and that's why I say, when he says, beware to his disciples, he's saying, you know, take heed, guard against, watch out for these guys. And he points out the scribe's sinful pride and arrogance. They're eat up with it. And I'll, I'll tell you this today, religious leaders, Christian leaders are not immune from the same temptation. Pride, arrogance. Ego, oh, so often gets in the way of those who are called by the Lord to minister to his people, to bring them. And, and yet this hinders them. It did for the scribes and the Pharisees. How do we know that? Well, let's read verse 46. Beware of the scribes who desire to walk in long robes and they had the long flowing religious garb that made them look so impressive. You know, um, and, and I know some people are very prone to robes today. And I said, well, power to them. I have enough trouble just walking in pants. Can't imagine trying to trip along with a long robe. But, but anyway, 
as if the as if the robe and, and, and if you had the robes naturally you had to have the tassels attached to the the hem of the robe now, now don't get me wrong jesus had tassels on his robe you know on his cloak it wasn't it wasn't a bad thing but but the the tassels that they had to their their elegant you know elaborate robes the tassels got longer and they got longer you know so as to you know the the, the tassels of a robe were simply to remind people of the law to keep their mind focused on okay I'm, I'm to serve god but then they made the tassels to become an object of awe so the people see a scribe with long flowing tassels like, Ooh, he's about a three incher I've seen some two inches and some one inches, but he's a three incher. He's got to be holy, righteous, and all of that. Je Jesus said they, they love to walk around showing off their long robe. Oh, but not only that, they love the greetings in the marketplace. Oh, it would just tickle the scribe's heart when the people would run up to him in the busy marketplace. That's why they like to be around the crowds. So they had a big audience, and somebody would run up to him and say, Oh, oh, teacher. That was a term of honor. Teacher. And he would say, yes, my child. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's nothing wrong in and of itself. But when, when it's motivated by, by, by pride and, and ego, Jesus said, watch out. They love these greetings in the marketplace. Not only that, but their, their, their pride and arrogance shows itself in the fact that they want the best seats in the synagogue. You know, those that are up front. My goodness, if you could be invited to sit up front close to the scroll itself in the synagogue, and even beyond that, you'd be asked to sit in the seat of Moses as a teacher. Oh, they love those seats. And I and I, I applaud your wonderful generosity and humility as a congregation. I noticed that y'all reserve all the good, the best seats up front. You know, you know, and you're very Humbly and meekly take the back. I'm just kidding. They wanted those seats that made them prominent. They want the best seats in the synagogue. And not only that, if there's going to be a party, a feast, somebody's having a, a, a big feast at their home. And, 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 you know, Jesus talked about the danger of wanting to have the, the seat of honor laying up next to the host. He said, don't, don't, go be, don't be so quick to go rushing to get into that honored seat because surely there will come along somebody who's a little bit more important than you and the host will have to say to you uh <laughs> excuse me they've outranked you could you move on down to the end of the table so he says you know so pride would cause them to say oh listen if i'm going to the feast i want to be the one that sits right next to the host because everybody will see me and it was in order one two three as you go around you know and so I, I was reading in Dr. John MacArthur's commentary, and he said, quote, they posed a soul-killing threat because they did not know God or the way to heaven. A soul-killing threat. Their very presence, their very practice, ultimately would cause people to die, leave this world, and spend eternity suffering under the judgment of God.
all the while thinking that through the rigorous legalism and the system of Judaism, they, they were on their way to heaven. Oh, listen, they egotistically yearned for the public's recognition and admiration. But the Lord exposed a number of their prideful and hypocritical ways. But, but that's not the end of the problem. That's not the end of the expose as Jesus is peeling off layers. Boy, he's undressing them in public, spiritually speaking. And I'm sure all the people were listening and said, Ooh, you know what? He's got a point. We, we can't argue with that. But understand the dilemma of the, of the multitude who are not Jesus' target audience. Those are his disciples. But, but try to appreciate the dilemma that is going on in the hearts and the minds of the average Jew. All their lives, they have been ingrained with a deep reverence and respect for those who held these lofty positions of leadership. They're the ones that were, would greet the rabbis in, in, in the public and, uh, and, and say, oh, teacher, they would listen intently as these false leaders would teach or preach. Now, understand the dilemma that's going on. They, they understood Jesus had this God-given divine authority, but he's dismantling their leaders. You talk about insecurity. These are the, this is the crowd as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, a colt of a donkey, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're not shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. You'll notice as the Passion Week progresses and the confrontations have occurred and Jesus is speaking truth and he's dismantling the security of their religious leaders and soon the system itself, the crowd's getting really quiet. The crowd is getting definitely quiet. Oh, they'll, they'll shout again. In just a matter of a couple of days, they'll be shouting again. But it won't be praises to the Lord, I promise you that. So Jesus now turns his attention to their insatiable greed and diabolical deceit. As we look at chapter 20, verse 47, he says not only that they their pride led them to desire all these recognitions, but then look at verse 47. You're talking about indicting. Whew. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And Jesus had talked about the fallacy of their long prayers they love to get out in public and get everybody's attention and just pray these long, long prayers. Of course, in my mind as a child, nobody prayed longer than my granddaddy Jim. I think he was a Pharisee. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, you're a kid. You're sitting in church, you know, and your stomach's growling at the end of the service and preachers calls on granddaddy Jim to pray. And I think, oh, we won't eat till dark. I think he played through all the books of the Old Testament and went through the New Year. And I, I, and I, I mean, he's a great, godly man. Love the Lord. But I just remember as a kid thinking, man, this is way too long. <laughs> they love their long prayers, but Jesus said they get their reward. God's not hearing those long 
egotistical, prideful, propped up prayers. They'll get their reward right here. There's no reward for them in glory. But in verse 47, he says, they also devour the widow's houses. I don't know if that grabbed your attention, but it certainly did mine. You see, at that time, in that time period, the scribes were entrusted with the responsibility to be estate planners for widows. Which sounds like a really nice thing. Widows need some help with their finances. And so, but the problem is these guys would greedily use elaborate deceitful schemes to rob the widows of their money, of their possessions, of their property. Oh, they would say, you know, very sanctimoniously, oh, now, sister, you understand. If you, if you donate all of this to the, to the religious system and to the temple, to the religious leaders and namely me, that, 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 that'll earn you spiritual you know, rewards. Robbing them of all the people, the widows. You know, Jesus in painting this very critical picture of the religious leaders of that day, he was also careful to make the distinction between himself and that crowd. In John chapter 10, I love this passage. Jesus speaking of himself, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, verse one, he who does not enter the sheepfold, speaking of the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and any other deceitful leader, he who does not enter the sheepfold, the sheep, of course, being God's true people, by the door, but climb up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. You can fill in the blank. Scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The keeper of the fold, the doorkeeper, keeper, knew the true shepherd and would readily open the door. But if you were not the true shepherd of the sheep, you're not getting through there. Jesus said, I am the shepherd, you see. He says to him, the, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will not by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he was speaking to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. He changes metaphorically. He switches from being the shepherd to the door, still access to the people. And all who ever came by before me, are thieves and robbers, speaking of the Jewish religious leaders. All those, they were thieves, they were robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. And as I'm reading this verse 9 in, in John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the door, I'm thinking John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Here, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. A thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Speaking of the religious leaders again, I have come that they might have life, hallelujah, and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
Jesus made a very clear distinction between himself as the good shepherd and those who would be like thieves and robbers and wolves and sheepskins. I ask you this morning, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, your good shepherd? Has he lovingly, faithfully led you to the Father through salvation? That you are now a child of God? Do you hear his voice when he speaks? And do you as a faithful child of God, one of the sheep of God, do you follow him? You have to decide for yourself if he's your good shepherd or not. But there's only one good shepherd and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten son of God. He came into the world to be savior and Lord. And you can have him as your shepherd to follow, to believe in, to entrust in. If you choose to believe in him, to confess your sins, to repent of your sins, he can be your good shepherd. As we move forward to the final point, and we're looking in chapter 21, at verse, 40, uh, verse 1 through 4. And I think it's interesting, this is also paralleled in Mark chapter 12, if you want to make a note and go back and look at that in chapter 12 of Mark, verse 41. But we're looking at Luke chapter 21, verse 1. Now I want you to recall, before I get into this text, just a little bit earlier in this week, probably Tuesday of the Passion Week, you, you remember we had a message talking about Jesus came into the temple. He looked around and saw all that was taking place. You talking about a marketplace? In fact, it was called Annas's marketplace, Annas being the high priest, because they were the ones that were profiting from the goings on. But do you remember how Jesus looked at what he saw with all the animal traders deceitfully you know, causing the people to have to buy their jacked up, expensive animals. They saw that money changers charging exorbitant exchange rates, bilking the people of their money, and, and, and most of the profits going to the priests. You remember? You remember Jesus' response? He went through that like a tornado. He was turning over tables. Money was flying everywhere, driving doves and sheep and whatever other animals were in there. He was, he was he made a whip and started chasing them out of there. He was incensed with holy anger because they were attempting to convert the Father's house of prayer and worship into a den of thieves. Oh, listen, <laughs> that was the first blow, I guess you would say of Jesus's dismantling of the religious system of that day. But the, but the people would have perceived that as maybe an attack on the temple practices. I'm just trying to help you get inside of the mind of the multitude, but Jesus is making the point. So now Jesus is back in the temple and, and he's, he's speaking as we see there earlier in, in chapter 20 and now it says he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. There were about 12, 13 of these trumpet shaped metal receptacles where people would come and 
put the offerings in. And you know, metal on metal makes a noise. If you got just a little metal to put in there, yeah, it probably doesn't get a lot of attention, but if you come and you're wealthy, you got a lot of surplus. That's what Jesus says. You're going to begin to dump all those coins. And everybody's like, ooh, big giver. Big giver. Why shouldn't the people do that? The Pharisees, they loved getting the public gathered around when it was their turn to give. They didn't even have a trumpet to sound, Jesus said in the, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't, don't blow your horn when you're getting ready to give. Don't you remember what the Lord said there? Yeah. Well, now Jesus is turning his attention to the faulty system, temple system of giving. And I want to just point out, as I was studying this, this was enlightening to me, but you know, contrary to some of the contemporary interpretations of this passage, and let me just read with you again. Then, then he looked up and, and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites, which would be about like two pennies, just the, 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 the most meager coins. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, speaking of the wealthy, for all these out of their abundance, surplus, have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all. You might want to just circle that little word. She has put in all the livelihood that she had. As I said, some contemporary interpretations of this passage, you know, make it almost sound like, you know, they, they teach that it, it, it teaches that God is pleased by the humble and sacrificial attitude of, of the widow, that God honors, you know, when you give sacrificially versus out of surplus. Uh, you know, now there are some truths. God does respect the fact that when we give, we give sacrificially out of our hearts, motivated by our love and devotion to Him. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't really condemn the wealthy, nor does He commend the widow specifically. It's actually a continuation of the Lord's pronouncement of judgment upon Judaism and its superficial practices and its diabolical leaders. So you see, it's not really intended to be a, quote, lesson on giving. Just remember, Jesus is in a string of condemnations, judgment, if you will, upon the religious leaders. And now he's given focus to the system, focused on the practices going on in the temple. So using the illustration of the desperately, and I emphasize desperately poor widow, Jesus demonstrates just how far given and worship had strayed from God's original intent. Might I just quickly remind you in Exodus chapter 22 at the very onset of God giving the law, he made it very clear in Exodus 22, 22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. 
And in fact, if you go back into Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, just listen to these words and just see how far they had strayed. In, in Deuteronomy 14, 28, it says, at the very end of every third year, you shall, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger, sojourner, and the fatherless, the orphans, and the widow, who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand that you do. Did you pick up on that? God had designed in his system of the theocratic government, he had a system of welfare to take care of those like the Levites who served the Lord and didn't have their own farms took care of them. It also took care of any strangers who were traveling and passing through to show hospitality. They would take out of the treasure, out of the tithes and feed those people and provide for them. They would do the same for the orphans who didn't have parents. They would do the same for the widows. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in verse 17, it says, you shall not pervert the, the justice you shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you will remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. You remember in Malachi 3.10, God says, you know, he was, he was chastising the people because they were, they were, they were uh, perverting the given system of that time. And God said, you know, bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Why? God didn't need to eat. He wasn't like these pagan gods that you see all across the world where people bring food and lay it before these deaf, dumb idols as if they can eat. God doesn't need food. But for the system to work and to honor Him, there must be food in the temple coming from the tithes of the people so that if there were orphans in the community, if there were widows in the community, they would be taken care of. So fast forward back to chapter 21 of Luke's gospel. And what do we see? Jesus is painting a picture here right before their eyes of of how the religious system, the system of giving, focused there in the temple, actually was preying upon the weaknesses of the citizens rather than enhancing their lives and drawing them to God. For instance, it tapped in on the pride of the wealthy. Oh, listen, everybody, if we're not careful, if you're wealthy, your pride can cause you to really do a lot of things to draw attention to yourself. And so the, the money receptacles and the focus upon giving lots of money, get lots of attention, that preyed upon the pride of, of, of so many people, especially those who had the money. But also, it also preyed upon the desperation of the widows who instead of being cared for by the temple treasury are desperately given everything to fulfill the works-based requirements of the system as if to possibly buy God's favor. Put yourself in the shoes of this widow. All she's got is two coins to rub together. 
And the, the, the perverted system of giving is saying, oh, listen, if you want God's favor, give it all. Don't hold back. God will surely bless you. Trying to use my TV evangelist voice there, but the fact is, what are they saying? This is what Jesus is saying in Mark's gospel. It says he was sitting across from the treasure. He's watching. How did he know? This is all she had. Omniscience. And he's pointing out. Do you see what the system is doing? It's telling this poor woman, give it all. So that we who are behind the given system, who benefit and profit from the given system, we'll get all we get, can get. Now, you just come and give it all, and then just go home and die. I mean, after all, if that's all you got. Do you see any mention in the passage where Jesus says, and she went by the treasurer, and they filled her cart up with groceries, and provided her with a week's worth of provisions for her, her family. Mm -mm. This is a this is a pronouncement of judgment upon a system that had gone terribly awry, and it broke the Lord's heart. Well, lest you be sitting smugly, thinking, "Well, I'm glad I'm in the 21st century. We're not that way." Let me just let me just caution us. The church today would be wise to heed the Lord's warning because this kind of sinful greed and love for money Jesus saw then is what historically corrupted the church during the medieval ages under Catholicism. You've probably heard how the Catholic church at that time in order to increase more money to coming into their already filled treasures, the most prosperous and, and the wealthiest organization in the world was the church. And it wasn't enough. So they send out people like, is it Johann Tetzel? And he's putting guilt trips on the people and saying, you haven't done enough. You've got loved ones that died and they were shady. You know they're burning up in purgatory. And they're in agony. And if you want to get your loved ones out of purgatory, then you come up with some indulgences that you can pay to the church. And you better be generous because you don't want to leave them hanging halfway. There's a terrible system of abuse built on the concept of giving. And I'll tell you what, it's so incensed the godly of that day, like Martin Luther, that it, that plus the other abuses of the church led to the Protestant Reformation. Ah, but it's not confined to the medieval church. Might we come to the contemporary evangelicals today? They're not without their share of false, greedy, materialistic leaders and practices that prey on people's pride. Oh no, the body of Christ must never be in a place where people's given becomes a prideful means to boast of their supposed generosity. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
God help us, so many churches fall prey to, oh, if you'll give this, we'll name such and such after you. Or we'll probably put a plaque up here on the wall to say, oh, we'll, we'll name this building after you. Oh, yes, you just give. Are we any less guilty of praying on the pride of people? Pride should not be the motive that causes a child of God to give sacrificially and generously. It should be the overflow of a right relationship with God. Oh, listen, when I think about the abuses of the prosperity gospel, unashamedly defrauding people of their money, especially the poor, with unbiblical promises of tenfold blessings. You just send those, keep those cards and checks coming. We'll send you a prayer cloth and you can wave it over your sick dog and he'll be running like a racehorse. No, I mean, any element you've got, you know, Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll send you all these wonderful, valuable stickers that at Kmart it cost you about 10 cents. Yeah, you just send your money and people are giving and giving and giving. Mm. Every church must guard their own heart toward their motives for giving, lest we end up with the faulty system of giving, similar to what Jesus was so incensed about at that time. We as individual Christians might well benefit from the Lord's simple and yet powerful instructions on authentic worship. You remember when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23? Jesus basically told her what the essence of true worship is. He said, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship. And out of that true worship, we humbly come before God. We are not looking, we're not riding on an ego stream or, or, or with puffed up with pride and wanting the attention and the praises of other people. We're wanting God to be pleased with us. It's not our motive. Greed is not our, our motive. Pride is not our motive in giving. And so, brothers and sisters, I conclude we must diligently guard against our own personal worship, including our giving becoming the practice of mindless rituals and empty religion. But instead, we should mo be motivated primarily through our relationship, our genuine, authentic, dynamic, personal relationship with Almighty God through our personal faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior and Lord. That's the ultimate motive for authentic worship. That's the motive for true, sincere giving. That's the motivation for living the Christian life. And I close by simply asking you, do you have such authentic faith in Jesus Christ? And is it reflected in your life? In the way you worship, in the way you serve, and in the way you give. I, I trust that it is for you and for me for this church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these timeless principles that continue to speak to us through the years. Helping us, Lord, to be aware of how easily it is to fall into these ruts that please man rather than God. Lord, help us to evaluate our own personal 
spiritual lives before you. Our own motives for doing what we do, saying what we say, giving what we give. Lord, may we as a congregation forever be mindful of the need to always be humble and authentic before you. May you be pleased with what we do. Lord, we thank you. I pray, Lord, if there's a person here today or persons that don't have a, a sincere faith relationship with you, not been saved, they don't live with the assurance of, of knowing their sins are forgiven and have eternal life and, and the blessed hope of heaven, and yet maybe you have chosen them, Lord, and you are speaking to their heart today. And they realize this is what's missing in their lives. I pray, Lord, oh, out of your love and kindness and mercy, would you draw them to Pastor Scott or myself or to Brother Mark and Tim. Let us have the opportunity to lovingly and, and patiently walk them through the word of God to see how they can have this wonderful assurance. Lord, we trust it all to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.